me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10 this morning. Mark chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 35 through 45. Who doesn't want to be great? I mean, everyone wants to be seen as great in some aspect of life, but few recognize what it really takes to to be in a position of greatness. I mean, what military person hasn't pictured himself or herself receiving the Congressional Medal of Honor? Yet, there are few who recognize what it means to receive that award. In fact, few living people have actually received that award. It generally goes to people who have died for the sake of our country. They have thrown themselves on a grenade to save other peoples in their platoon. Or they have, uh, they have gotten in front of heavy enemy fire. Or retrieved a wounded soldier from a, a hostile territory. And when you think of the Medal of Honor in those terms, you realize that that is not as enticing. I mean, who's ready to sign up for that? Who's ready to give their life for the sake of the country? But that type of recognition that comes from the Medal of Honor is only given to those who have gone through that sort of thing. Those people who have suffered to the point where they have had to be willing to give their life, and in many cases, they have given their life. And that's the type of greatness that the Lord is looking for in us. Not that we are going to go down and lay, lay down our life for someone else necessarily, but that we will lay down our lives for Christ. And that the cost to follow Christ is not insignificant. It is not something like we just read about that, that costs us nothing. How could we give to the Lord something that costs us nothing? Is the question that David asked there in the passage we just read. It's not that we shouldn't pursue greatness, but that we should understand what it means to pursue greatness in the kingdom. Let's begin reading verse 35 of Mark chapter 10. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel, to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Honor will be given in the kingdom 
But it's not based on position of authority, on how many people you have under you. Rather, it's based on, on your extent of service, on how willing you are to get down and be a slave of other people. That's, that's the words that Jesus uses. <clears throat> we, the passage begins with the disciples' desire for this position of greatness in verses 35 through 37. James and John voice their, their desire here in verse 35. And we know from Matthew that it's actually their mom, their mom, uh, whose name I believe is Salome, and uh, she was married to Zebedee, and apparently she wanted to have her two sons at, at the forefront of what Jesus was doing in the kingdom. If Jesus is coming and He's going to reign, then why can't my sons be right up next to, to Him on His throne? And so their request is to sit at His right and His left hand, which are the highest positions of honor besides the throne of a king. You remember in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 19, where Bathsheba, who was David's wife, uh, requested uh, a meeting with David. There was great honor that was given to the king. And he allowed her to sit at his right hand, which was the highest position of authority at that time, and, and throughout uh, history. And so when they ask here in verse 37, grant that we may sit one, of your, one on your right and one on your left in your glory, they're talking about in the kingdom. They understand that, that Jesus is coming as the Messiah to rule as the king in his kingdom. And they want to be right there so to be viewed by all because of their greatness. And we see in verse 41 that this is not simply the desire of the two disciples, James and John. It's also the, disciple, the desire of the other ten. Look at verse 41 with me. Hear this, hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. To be indignant means to be appalled at something that is assumed to be wrong. To be filled with anger. Jesus uh, was indignant with the disciples in chapter 10, verse 14. Look up there here in chapter 10. Look at verse 14. But when Jesus saw this, that the disciples were turning these children's, children away in verse 13, when He saw this, He was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to Me and do not hinder them. So this is the idea that Jesus is appalled that the disciples would be doing something that, that is wrong. In their case, they assume what what uh, this is assumed to be wrong. So the disciples are indignant. The ten disciples in Matthew chapter twenty-one, verse fifteen, we have the same sort of idea with the chief priests and the scribes. They felt indignant when they found out that Jesus was exalted at the triumphal entry. The very next story that we're going to look at, Mark chapter eleven, verses one through eleven. But in Matthew, he records the same thing, and he says afterwards, the chief priests and the scribes were indignant. They were filled with anger because they assumed that to be wrong. And so what the disciples are doing here is they have this feeling of indignation that, that what James and John are doing is wrong. Now, I don't believe it's, they, they thought that they were wrong because they were asking it. That how dare you? You shouldn't ask that of Jesus. Let Him give that to whomever He pleases. They were indignant because that shouldn't have been them in that position. It should have been one of us. And I think that's uh, supported by the fact that Jesus speaks to all of them. Notice verse 42. Calling them to Himself, Jesus said to them. He's speaking to all the disciples here. 
And he, he gives them a lesson on what greatness is about and how a person attains greatness. <clears throat> now, we also have proof from other parts of Scripture. Let me have you turn back to chapter 9. That the disciples were involved in this debate as to who was the greatest and who deserved the greatest amount of recognition. Notice chapter 9, verse 33. They, Jesus and His disciples, came to Capernaum. And when He was in the house, He began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they, that is all the disciples, kept silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. So the disciples here are showing that they have a desire to be in that position of greatness. Turn over to Luke chapter 22. So that happens before this incident, Mark chapter 9. But here, it's even taking place at the Last Supper. Luke chapter 22, verse 24. And there arose also a dispute among them, the disciples, as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. So that's why uh, both the, the immediate context of chapter 10, verse, uh, verse 41, and also the rest of Scripture shows, the rest of the Gospels show that these guys were, this was a habit that they were taking part in, that they wanted to see who was the greatest among them, who deserved the greatest amount of recognition. And that's why there was this feeling of indignation. Now the question we have to ask ourselves in verse 37 is, was this, request legitimate? Was it legitimate to ask uh, about greatness? Is, is greatness something we should pursue or should we pursue spiritual mediocrity? I mean, obviously, when I say it like that, you understand uh, what, what I uh, believe about it. And, and I would suggest to you that Jesus never condemns the pursuit of greatness. He doesn't, pers- he doesn't say, no, 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 no. You are not supposed to be great. Just go with the flow. Be apathetic. Be indifferent about the things of the Gospel. No. He, he doesn't condemn them for pursuing greatness. Instead, notice how He responds, verse 42. Calling them to Himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers and Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Notice, but whoever wishes to become great. He doesn't say don't become great. He says if you want to be great. And then look at verse 44. And whoever wishes to be first, or we could say great, shall be slave of all. So on. So he simply shows them that greatness in the kingdom is very different from their idea of greatness. So let's look at an eternal perspective from the one who knows. Okay, an eternal perspective from the one who knows. Verses 38 through 40. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And we'll, we'll uh, leave it there. Honor begins with willingness to suffer. Instead of rebuking them for asking the question, He, he, he gently leads them to where they ought to go. This is where you ought to go in your pursuit of greatness. And he, he turns 
turns the tables around on them and says, are you willing to drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism that, with which I am baptized? So we need to understand what he's talking about here in verse 38 if we're going to understand what Jesus is trying to tell them and us. The cup, the word cup, is used two ways in the Scripture. One, you can imagine, is as a literal cup. Um, in uh, chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus says, Take this cup, the new covenant, my blood, and, and, and drink it as often as you... As you do so, do it in remembrance of me. This is the Last Supper. It's an actual, literal cup. Now, what Jesus is saying here, or asking here in verse 38, is he's not talking about a literal cup. He's saying, are you willing to drink the cup that I drink? Instead, he's using it the other way that the Scriptures use the word cup. And that is, in a figurative way, to refer to suffering. In Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17, it talks about drinking from the cup of God's wrath. In in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, remember what Jesus prays at Gethsemane before He goes and, and is crucified? He said, let this what? Let this cup pass from Me. He's talking to God. He's saying, let this cup of suffering... He's not saying this literal cup. He's saying, let this cup of suffering pass from Me. I don't want to go through this. And so we understand that that, that that is what Jesus is talking about here in verse 38. And so when He says, are you willing to drink the cup? He's saying, are you willing to experience? Are you willing to submit yourself to severe trial and perhaps even death? So uh, this is the question that he, he leads with. But He also asks another question. Or are you willing to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, Baptism in the Scriptures can also refer to several different things. It can refer to a literal baptism like we just had a couple weeks ago where someone is making a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ and they are buried in the waters of baptism to signify their association with Jesus Christ and they are raised from the water to associate themselves with Christ in the sense of His resurrection and that they are dead to the former ways of life. So, so this idea of baptism, however, in this passage has to do not with the, the formal uh, ritual that we go through, I guess you could say, but rather it is to take a plunge into martyrdom. It's an initiatory rite that, that a person would go through. Perhaps the, the, the metaphor would go something like this. I'm about to be, Jesus is saying, I'm about to be poured, poured uh, over with suffering. And are you willing, are you prepared to drown in the suffering with which I am going to drown in? See the point here? That I'm going to have so much wrath poured out on me by God that this suffering is going to result in my death. Are you willing to bury yourself in that to the point where you drown in the suffering that God has for you? He's not saying that they must die for other sinners like Jesus was going to do. We'll see that in verse 45. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to die for sinners. That's not what the disciples were required to do. Were they willing to to allow themselves to go through suffering like Jesus did and to the point where it would ultimately, potentially, result in death? This is the question that Jesus is asking them. Notice their response in verse 39. The disciples reply, they said to him, we are able. Now, the disciples, I think, here are a little bit confused 
as to what Jesus is asking. They do think that, that it does have to do with some sort of suffering. They understood the Old Testament. But you see, they, don't, they still don't understand that Jesus is talking about His own death, physical death that's going to take place. This is, by the way, the third time that Jesus has talked about His death. Back up in chapter 10, verses 32-34, we looked at this last week, that Jesus said, Behold, I'm going up to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, and they're going to crucify Me. But the disciples don't understand what He's talking about there. Because uh, we find in, in uh, I think it's Luke, says that when they went away from this, Luke chapter 18 tells us that when they went away from this, they still were confused about it, but they were too afraid to ask what it meant. And, in fact, I think that, that their idea of the kingdom, that, that Jesus was here as the Messiah. Yes, Jesus, you are the Christ, Peter says on behalf of the disciples. You are the Messiah. We recognize you as the Messiah from the Old Testament. But our understanding of the Messiah is that He will reign and Jesus is trying to explain to them that, yes, I will reign, but first, that's going to happen later. First, I have to suffer and I have to die. They didn't understand this. And that's why, turn to John chapter 18, that's why I think the disciples are thinking here that Jesus wants us to be His soldiers in a way that we're going to stand up and and there's going to be some persecution down the road but we're going to get through that jesus is going to reign on the throne and and we're going to be there the kingdom's going to be ushered in and so we'll get through that little difficult part but 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 we're here to fight for you jesus so that's why they say we are able i think look at john chapter 18 verse 10 this is when jesus is getting arrested judas betrays him here Notice verse 10 of chapter 18. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave, cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? Okay, so there's the idea of cup there, that Jesus is talking about the cup of suffering. So that kind of plays into what we had been talking about. But but the the disciples think that Jesus is talking about getting them ready for a battle. Are you ready to go to battle with me is what they think Jesus is saying. Will you do whatever it takes to defend my kingdom? And they say, yeah, we'll we'll do it. We're able. And that's why I think Peter comes with a sword. Do you know of any other place in the New Testament or in the Gospels where, where the disciples are carrying a sword? No, they think that this is it. We're ready. That's why Jesus says, no, put it back in your sheath. That was Peter's sword. I always thought of it as, oh, he just probably grabbed somebody else. I mean, he wouldn't be coming there to do battle, would he? But in fact, the Scriptures tell us that Peter was ready to do battle. He was there to fight. And so he grabbed the sword and probably either tried to cut off his head or or just tried to slice him right down the middle. The guy moved and he cut off his ear. I mean, this is serious stuff. They're taking the Messiah. They can't do this. And I'm going to be there to help them. And after Peter puts, uh, puts the sword away, Jesus heals the man's ear, puts it back on, and Jesus says to him in verse 11, The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? See, the disciples do not understand what's about to happen. 
they are totally shocked when He actually goes all the way to the cross and dies. In fact, John tells us later that it wasn't until after the resurrection that they started putting the pieces together. Oh, He did say He was going to destroy this temple and in three days build it back up again. He did say He was going to die. He was going to be scourged and beaten. That was literal. He really was going to do that. So turn back to, to Mark chapter 10. And we'll see what Jesus' response to them is because they respond, yes, we're able. We're willing to go through this suffering for you, Jesus. And Jesus says to them, notice at the second part of verse 39, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with that which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus says, um, you are going to be persecuted. There, There is a sense in which you are going to do what you just said you're going to do. We are able to follow you into suffering. But you don't understand what that means. Many of the disciples, in fact, did die as martyrs. Very few. I think John and maybe one other uh, died of natural causes. But he still was persecuted, even John. Jesus is saying this, if you are to follow Me, even to the point of suffering and death, that's a start. But ultimately, that position that you they are looking for is, is determined by the Father. That's why in verse uh, 40, at the end of the verse, it says, it's not Mine to give. God is the sole determiner of the position of honor in the kingdom. He has already prepared it, the end of the verse talks about. But God's system of of hierarchy as far as, as who gets the honor, who who is determined as great, is is so much different than our world's perspective. Honor's not honor is not determined, Jesus says, by by how many people serve you. Notice verse forty two again. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. But it is not this way among you. Worldly governments are organized on the principle of rank with the exercise of authority coming from the top down. And and Jesus is telling them, listen, it's not this way among you. Christ didn't suggest that they, they shouldn't obey those authorities. He's just saying that's not the way it works in the kingdom. Who The people who are determined as great is not based on how many people are serving them. Their position of authority. Rather, verses 43-45, through honor is determined by how many people you serve. This is the point he's trying to get at. How many people you serve is the point. This is how you, you become great. You serve more people. The principle stated in verses 43 and verse 44, and then Jesus shows the example in verse 45. Verse 43, but it's not this way among you. You're not like the Gentiles. It, the, the structure of authority, the way that the world operates is different from the way that God operates. Here's how it works in the eternal kingdom. Whoever wishes to become great, and we could supply in the kingdom, in glory, as they would say. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first or great among you shall be slave of all. It's a reversal of the world structure. Greatness, Jesus says, is service. 
He uses two terms for what they are pursuing and two terms for what He is looking for. If you want to become great, if you want to be first. Okay, James and John, this is what you're asking. Disciples, this is what you're angry about. You want to be first. You want to be great. Here's what you need to do. You need to be servant of all. You need to be slave of all. Same sort of idea in both of those terms. This is exactly what Jesus has been talking about. Now, this is not the idea of being a slave to the point where we are slobbering wimps and incompetent and ignorant and simply a doormat for everybody to walk on any more than Jesus was. He was a slave in the sense that he was humble, but he wasn't incompetent. He was a servant, but he wasn't ignorant or tolerating of others' beliefs. What this idea it has to do with is, is this idea of self-denial. It is giving up ourselves, being a slave for the sake of our Master. So that means giving up ourselves for the sake of others. Chapter 8, verse 34. Uh, Jesus talked about this before. If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself. Chapter 8, verse 35. Whoever wishes to preserve his self-centered life, his position of greatness will lose it, but whoever loses his self-centered life will gain eternal life. Chapter 9, verse 35, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Chapter 9, verse 37, Whoever serves a child like this in My name. In other words, are you willing to take care of the weakest person in society, the child? Hey, We talked about that before. You're willing to do that? Then, then you really do accept Me. You really are on My team. You really are My follower. You want to see an example of what that looks like? Of denying self and giving up all that you have for the sake of your Master? You want to see what that looks like? Jesus says, look at Me. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus says, I did not come to be served, although He of all people deserved people to bow down to Him and worship Him because He is God. He set aside that privilege and that desire for greatness, really, so that He could serve others. And the point here is that the path to the throne is a path of service. You want to be great, then you need to serve. If men like the disciples and men and women like us would sit as kings in the kingdom, then we must stoop to minister even as the Messiah did, where He came to, not to be served, but to serve. To get down on His knees and serve. And the purpose of His service is found at the end of the verse. To give His life a ransom for many. A ransom, as you know, is a price of release. Money paid for the release of a slave. It's the price that's paid to deliver us, Jesus is doing, from our sin and death. We are slaves to sin, slaves to Satan, yet Jesus pays the price through this ransom. 1 Timothy 2.6 says that Jesus gave Himself as a ransom for all. It's the same word that's used in Mark chapter 8, verse 37. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Or what will a man give in a ransom for his soul? What will he do to buy it back? This is what Jesus is doing. He's giving His life to buy back ours. It's, it's given for us. Those who readily accept Jesus' ransom ought also to accept His, His example of service. If you're willing 
If you you are accepting of Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you should be willing to follow His example to serve. This is the point He's trying to make to the disciples and to us. So are you pursuing a position of greatness? Are you wanting to be great in the kingdom? That pursuit is not necessarily a bad thing unless the motive is simply to be seen to be great by other people. How will people view me in the kingdom? How will people view me now? If that's the motive, then that's a problem. But if the motive is to do your best for your master, then Jesus is saying, all right, you want to do your best for me? You want to give up everything for me? Let's see some proof of it. Are you willing to suffer and die for me? Are you willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to stand up for my sake? Are you willing to to give a cup of cold water to the weakest member of my kingdom? Are you willing to take care of the orphans and widows? Are you willing to serve the most despicable, low-down, dirtiest member of society? Or we we could say the dirtiest member of our church. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to be a slave for the sake of the one who who became a slave for you? You, If you say that you're willing to be a slave, you must be willing to relinquish all your rights because that's what slaves do. They operate for the sake of their masters, not for the sake of their own benefit or for the sake of what people will view them or how people will view them. You know, I deserve to be noticed for what I did. I deserve credit for that activity or that, or that conversion. No, slaves defer their credit to their master. They don't say, I deserve a high position. They simply serve for the sake of their master. They do what is best for their master. You might think, well, why don't people notice what I'm doing? Why don't people see more of what I'm doing and recognize me for it? If that's your motive, then you're doing it for the wrong reason because that's not what slaves do. And Jesus is telling you, you need to be a slave. Be willing to, to be treated like a servant. What, how do you respond when people treat you that way? I don't deserve to be treated like that is normally our response. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you deserve to be treated like that and you will be treated like that. How are you going to respond? And by the way, it's not enough to simply do slavely duties. They must be in they must be in relationship to what the scriptures call us to do. For example, okay, we, we could spend a, t- a lot of time out in the back digging a hole. We could dig a hole for weeks and weeks and just do something that has no purpose. But we can make a slave of ourselves. But it would mean absolutely nothing in the eyes of God if it wasn't for a purpose. That is in our case, to build up the body of Christ. If we're not serving, if we're not being a slave for the sake of the church, then it does us no good. Okay, so, so I'm not, Jesus is not calling you, and I'm not saying that we should just simply be slaves. Just, just make, make it really difficult in life for ourselves. No. He's, he's saying it'll be difficult enough. Okay, You don't have to make it difficult. Just do what's right. Do what's best for the sake of the church. Ephesians 4.16 talks about giving ourselves for the purpose of building up the body of Christ as each joint supplies. Or as 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about each member of the body, have, body having an important role in, in the life of, in the function of the body of Christ. 
We need to participate and help build other people up in that sense. My final thought here with regard to this passage is that this has some significant implications for our choosing of leadership in the church or our choosing of teachers in the church. Because we operate under a different principle than worldly leadership. We, we, because we do, we, we have to operate by Christ's principles, what He lays down for greatness and for determining teachers and leaders in our church. So we must not elevate people to places of leadership who may have many gifts necessary. Maybe in the corporate world they are superior but they lack the willingness to participate in unsolicited service. Do you know what I'm talking about there? A service that nobody's going to see, that nobody's asking about, that, that they simply do for the sake of, of, of obeying Christ, to, to help out the body. So that means to lead or to teach. Yes, you do have to have the gift of leadership and the gift of teaching, but you also must be profoundly committed to this principle of self-denial, of serving, of, of being a slave for the sake of our church, for the sake of the brothers and sisters in Christ. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how good your leadership qualities are, it doesn't matter how good of a teacher you are, you're disqualified because you're not a person who denies self. Do you want to know who's qualified to be a leader in our church? It's those people who are already willing to serve. Just look around. Okay? You, you, you know who those people are. Those are the people who are, are qualified to be in a position of leadership. The people who serve without, uh, without a desire for recognition, who just simply get down and get dirty. When it's time to serve, they serve. They don't complain. They just do it. Look for people who are already characterized by spiritual growth and selfless service. Those are the people that should be in leadership and in teaching positions within our church. Perhaps you want to be in a position of leadership. Well, then are you willing to be a slave? Are you willing to be a servant of all? Not just in principle, but in action. Do you deeply care about the, the needs of others or do you simply do it just so that you can get to that position of power? What is the point? Hey, what is the motive behind it? That's the most important thing. Greatness is not about how people see you or how many people serve you. Greatness is about how God sees you. And what God desires most, what He is looking for, is people who are servants of His. People who are willing to do what He requires, what He demands with the right attitude, the right motive. That's what God is looking for. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we are grateful for this lesson in humility. We often think that we have it all figured out at times in life and we simply go through the motions and we don't think about what the ultimate purpose is. We don't think about what You demand of us. So it's good to be reminded of the principles by which You operate that in order for us to be great, we need to be servants. Lord, I pray that this message would not be uh, something that would be used by people to 
justify an apathetic lifestyle. Certainly that is not what Jesus was calling for. But that it would be used to see that we all have a responsibility if we are willing to accept the ransom of the Savior whom we love, then we must be willing to accept His example of service. And although there may be opposition, although we will suffer persecution, although at times it will seem impossible and difficult, we know that You are doing it for Your glory and You're accomplishing our greatest good. So we pray that You'd help us to trust in You in, in these things and be willing to to suffer when it's time to suffer. And if, it's, and if it means that we have to die for the sake of Christ and the Gospel, that we would do so. We are slaves. We are servants at Your service, ready to follow. Help us to do so with the right heart attitude. And may it not be just something that we say or we even commit to in our hearts today, but that it would be something that shows up in the way that we operate within this local body that we look out for the interests of others and we see what is most necessary to building up this body and we take part in doing it. Not for the sake of being seen by others, but for sake of being pleasing to our God. We love You and we want to serve You with all that we have. Help us to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.